You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, we repent of our sin against you, of rejecting your words, of seizing your glory. Open our eyes to see the depths of our sin and the heights of your mercy. Humble us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week we began our journey through the story of God, didn't we? And in Genesis 1, we saw a vision of the world as it was always meant to be. God as the author of history. This world as the arena of his glory. And us his servants, his people, his actors made in his image to rule and enjoy this world. This is the world as God created it. God's people living in God's kingdom with God as their king. It's a world where all of us are singing from the same song sheet, where all of us are reading from the same script as such. It's a world free from disaster, disease and death. This is a world which God looked at and said, it is very good indeed. I don't know about you, but if you look at our, around our world today, you might notice that our world looks nothing like what we see here in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, don't we just wish that our world right now were more like what we read of in Genesis chapter 1? But our world, it casts a very different picture. In fact, if you had to sum up and summarize and describe our world today in just two words, it would be this, virus and violence, virus and violence. Instead of humanity ruling our earth with care and righteousness, creation is fighting back and it's claimed the lives of 424,000 people around our world. Virus but also violence. Instead of people living in trust and peace with one another, no fear and violence rule the day. We see East versus West, rich versus poor, men versus women, black versus white. In Genesis 1, we see a world of order and perfection and righteousness, but here we live in a world of chaos. And there is this vast gulf between our world as it was meant to be and our world as it is today. And when we look at that difference, our big question there, isn't it? Our defining question is this. How did it all go wrong? How did it all go wrong? And in today's chapter, we find the answer. Act 2. Fall. Well, just as every story has its crisis... Genesis chapter 3 shows us the crisis of history. And in verses 1 to 5, it all starts with one deadly question. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. A shadow falls on the goodness of creation. The music changes into a minor key. The camera slowly zooms in and settles on a snake. Even that image of a snake 
warns us that whatever will come next will not be good. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say? Is that really your part in the story? Are those really your lines in the script? You see, this serpent, he's cunning, not just because he doubts God's words, but he ever so subtly distorts them. I mean, do you notice what he asks? Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God didn't say that, did he? Back in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, look at what he really says. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. You see, the serpent, he doubts God's words, but then he ever so subtly distorts God's words as well. He makes words that bless. You can eat from any tree in the garden except for the one that'll kill you into words that burden. You can't eat from any tree at all. And with that simple but deadly question, the woman wavers. Her resolve weakens. And now she too distorts God's words. Just look, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. But God never said you must not touch it. He only said you must not eat it. No, the woman wavers. Her trust in her author is shaken by that one deadly question. And then suddenly, in verse 4, the serpent, he rears his head and he strikes. No, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent doubts God's words. He distorts God's words. And now... He straight out denies God's words. He drives a wedge between the woman and her God, almost like a tempter who leads a woman away from her husband. The serpent whispers in her ear, God doesn't want us to be happy. The serpent doubts, distorts, and denies God's good words. He doesn't want you to be like him. Which again is nothing but a lie. Remember back in chapter 1 verse 26 in act 1 of our story, God created the man and the woman according to his own likeness. No, they're already like God. But this serpent, this snake, offers the woman something more. Not just to be like God, but to be God. To know good and evil, that means to decide good and evil. To be the author of her own life, the director of her own destiny, to rewrite her part in God's plan. In fact, to rewrite God's story as her own story. And so, the woman replaces God's words with her own words. 
And we sit here and we wonder, how in the world did it all go so wrong? Well, it all started with one deadly question. Did God really say? You see, friends, every sin begins with doubting, distorting and denying God's good words. And I don't know about you, but we can see that pattern run thick through our lives, can't we? Just imagine that woman in a relationship with a non-Christian man. She knows that she should only marry within the people of God. That that is God's best for her. But little by little, step by step, she doubts, distorts, and eventually she even denies God's good words. Why? Also, she can marry the man. It starts by doubting. Did God really say that I should only marry another believer? Well, yes. But just like the woman in Genesis, this woman wavers. She doubts. But like so many of us, her problem is not just that she doubts God's words, but she hardly knows them at all. You see, friends, if we don't know God's words, we'll never know God's goodness. And if we never know God's goodness, then his words will be all burden and no blessing. Just imagine the woman then moves on from doubting God's words to distorting God's words. And we all do this, don't we? She says to herself, but Adam, God commands us to love one another. And I love him. Surely God can't be against that. But all she's doing and all we do is redefine God's love. We distort the love of Christ into the love of self. And in the end, she simply ends up denying God's words. And have you ever wondered, why is it that God calls us to marry within his people? Why is it that God calls us to avoid sin altogether? It was for exactly the same reason that he told the man, don't eat from that tree. Because on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. But instead of trusting God's words, you and I, we too often fall for the serpent's lie, don't we? You will not die. No, friends, we indulge in sin because so often we do not realize its cost. We think to ourselves, how bad can it possibly be? So the woman goes ahead and marries the unbeliever. Or we feed sins of our own. We indulge in pornography. We worship our marriage, our career, or our security, all without realizing that in the end, we will certainly die. And then, if God is merciful... I'll tell you what, it's not because of our sin, but it's in spite of it. We reject God's words to justify our sin. Friends, every sin begins with doubting, distorting, and then denying God's good words. It all begins with one deadly question. Did God really say? And that deadly question leads to a deadly action. 
Look at me at verse 6. The woman sees, she sees that the tree is good for food and delightful to look at, and that it is desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so, in a simple act that will change history forever, she reaches out, takes the fruit, and eats it. This is the moment that in the story where the crime is committed, where the killing blow is dealt. In a desire to be not just like God, but to be God herself, the woman grasps the fruit. She snatches the pen. She seizes God's glory. She thinks that she is a better author than God. So she tears up her part in his story. Sin is both rejecting God's word and seizing God's glory. Now, all this while, you might be wondering to yourself, Adam, where's Adam? Where's the man been this whole time? Has he just gone MIA all the while he, while the serpent is tempting his wife? Well, verse 6 tells us exactly where he's been. He's been right there all along. Present, but passive. Lingering, but not leading. Instead of leading his wife to represent God on the stage of this world, no, this man abdicates his leadership and he fails his wife. And so in verse 6, the author simply says, and he ate it. And it's as if in that one bite, Adam seals the fate of humanity. Sin began with one deadly question And it's now committed and sealed with one deadly action. And in that act, everything changes. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. You know, before sin entered the world, the man and his wife, they were naked yet felt no shame. It's beautiful. They were fully vulnerable with one another. They saw each other just as God had created them and they had nothing to hide. But now they see each other not as God had created them, but as sin had corrupted them. For the first time in their lives, the man and his wife had something to hide. For the first time in their lives, they feel shame. I wonder, what do you do or what do you feel when you fall deeply into sin? When we've done something that leaves us feeling so embarrassed and so ashamed. Surely then our greatest fear, right, is that someone else might just find out. We might be caught out and someone will see us then for who we really are. They'll see us for what we've really done. And so... We cover our sin. We hide our shame. And that's exactly what the man and his wife do in verse 7. They sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. You see, friends, this is the moment when shame entered our world. The the scene now shifts. And it's verse 8. And God, it's beautiful, intimate and ironic. He comes walking in the garden. At the time of the evening breeze. It's as if God's just on his casual afternoon stroll in his garden to visit his people. It's beautiful. 
It's intimate. It shows that there's nothing between God and his people. It's like that moment when your dad comes home from a long day of work and is so excited to spend that time with his kids. But he realizes in that moment that, well, the kids have just smashed the TV. And instead of running to welcome their dad, no, they run away from him and hide. Verse 8 tells us that the man and his wife hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's terribly sad. It's tragic when you think about it. I mean, God and his people, they're meant to live in a relationship of total openness. And it hears that question as God calls out, Where are you? Where are you? I mean, let's be clear, it's not that God doesn't know where he is. No, he does. But it's as if he's gently inviting the man to front up and fess up. But what does the man say? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. Friends, this is the moment when fear entered our world. Just imagine, I know there aren't that many dads in our church, but there are some and eventually there'll be many. Imagine that heartbreak as a father who longs for your kids to run to you and welcome you home, but instead they run away from you and hide from you in fear. Just imagine how heartbreaking that must be. You know, if you're not a Christian, you might feel distant from God. You might even feel afraid of God, even ashamed before God. That's not the way it's meant to be. And that's not the way it needs to be. But because of sin, that's the way that it is. That's not just your feeling, no, that's your reality. Because sin separates us from God by shame, by fear, and by guilt. Look at verse 7. God asked the man, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then, what is almost comical, the blame game begins. Look at what the man says. No, the woman you gave to be with me. No, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. The man, he, he blames his wife. But even worse than that, he blames God. Well, the woman, she gives as good as she gets. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, friends, this is the moment when guilt entered our world. It's as if the dad comes home from a long day at work only to find the TV broken, his son holding a hammer, and the son blaming his sister, and the sister then blaming the pet. The man is objectively guilty. He's broken God's command. But instead of owning his guilt, he blames everyone else for it. We need to realize that this is a parcel that we simply cannot pass. This is a footy we simply can't handball. No, friends, our guilt is ours to bear. Well, just like the man and his wife, how many of us refuse to own our sin? How many of us will so naturally just blame everyone else around us? We see it in our world, don't we, as the East blames the West and the West blames the East. The left blame the right, and the right blame the left. 
Men blame women and women blame men. But even in our own hearts, even in our own lives, even in our own words, how many of us will blame others to justify our sin? What do we say? I'm allowed to be bitter because of what that person did to me. Or just like the man worse still, how many of us blame God? We raise our fist to God and we say, you made me this way. You gave me this life. You did this to me. No, friends, our guilt is ours to bear. And another's guilt is theirs to bear. No, we did this. And we need to own it. We need to reckon with our guilt and accept that we've rejected God's word and seized God's glory. Friends, this is the moment when shame, fear and guilt entered our world. A deadly question leads to a deadly action. And a deadly action leads to a deadly curse. Notice, first of all, that the cost of sin is not merely a consequence. It's not as if death is simply the natural result of sin. No, the cost of sin is not a consequence, but a curse. It's the active righteous judgment of a holy and loving God against all of us who reject his word and seize his glory. It's the just and right decision of the author over his actors who have sought to take his place. We need to accept this, that the God who created this world in love is the God who curses this world in wrath. In fact, it's because he's our creator that only he can be our judge. And as our author and creator, our sin is against him and him alone. So in verses 14 to 15, God curses the serpent. Now, when we read this, we need to understand these verses aren't saying that snakes once had legs and God took their legs away. No, it's figurative. It's saying that from this point on, the one whom the serpent represents, Satan himself will be humiliated in this world. That's what it means to eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15 says that God will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Friends, you see what this is saying? The rest of our story, the rest of human history will be defined by a contest, a battle, a war between the people of Satan and the people of God, the condemned and the chosen, the wicked and the righteous, the world and the church. But I want you to notice that in the darkness of this curse shines a shaft of light. For the woman's offspring will strike the head of the serpent and you will strike his heel. God promises that one day a man will be born of women who will bind the strong man, defeat the devil and destroy evil once and for all. Sure, the serpent may injure him and bite at his heel, but this man, whoever he will be, will destroy the serpent with a fatal blow by crushing his head. 
And we know, friends, don't we, who this is. That that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he will be tortured and crucified by the sons of Satan and this world. And they will strike at his heel. But in his death, Jesus will crush the head of the serpent and he will free us from the curse of sin forever. But that act in this story is not yet come. And while we Christians enjoy the freedom of that now, no, in this act of God's story, this shaft of light is but a faint glimmer in a sea of darkness. And through the rest of the Bible, we will witness this perennial struggle between the seed and the woman, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the people of God and the people of this world. Secondly, in verse 16, God curses the woman. The joyful act of childbearing unique to the woman is now cursed to be painful. And instead of the woman helping her husband in humility and the man leading his wife in love, her desire will be for her husband, that is for his position, his leadership, yet he will rule over her. Friends, you see that sin separates God and us. It separates men and women. Brothers, you need to hear this. God created husbands to lead their wives in sacrificial love. And sisters, you need to hear this, that wives God has created to help their husbands in humble submission. But have you noticed that so often it doesn't pan out that way? Men have this tendency to either abdicate their leadership like Adam or abuse their leadership in harshness and control. And women will either assert their power over their husbands like Eve or acquiesce to his poor leadership and fail to help him at all. No, this battle between men and women is actually not fundamentally about fighting for one sex's equality at the other sex's expense. No, it's all about sin. Finally, God curses the man. In verses 17 to 19, the man is judged because he listened to his wife. He failed to lead her in love, but instead he was led by her into sin. The very task of ruling this earth and representing God in this world is now cursed. And just like childbearing, it is now painful. Instead of bearing fruit, the earth bears thorns and thistles. I mean, think about this. Work was created by God back in Genesis 1, before sin entered the world. Work is good. And there was a time where it was free from pain, toil and exhaustion. But now because of sin, even our work is cursed. Engineers build bridges that will one day fall. Bankers invest money that is lost as quickly as it is found. Teachers teach students who forget the next day. And doctors heal patients who will one day die. You see, all of our work is a mix of the creation and the curse, isn't it? God created us to work. And friends, I need you to know that your work is good and it honors God. But your work is also cursed, which means in this life, it will never be everything that God created it to be. And so, we find the ultimate curse on humanity in verse 19. 
for you are dust, and to dust you will return. You see, friends, all of us will one day die. And death entered the world right here in Genesis 3. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. How did it all go so wrong? One man sinned, so one man died. All men sinned. So all men die. What's true of the man and what's true of the woman is true of us all, isn't it? All of us have rejected God's word. All of us have seized God's glory. All of us live with shame, with fear and with guilt. And all of us, without exception, live under the curse of death. And yet... And yet, for some unfathomable reason, in verse 21, we find a poignant and intimate moment. God clothes the man and the woman. He covers their shame. It's an act of unnecessary kindness that even in the midst of judgment, this God shows mercy. And so, friends, we arrive at the end of Act 2, Fall. And this scene ends with a vivid picture of the greatest cost of sin. The man and the woman are cast out from God's presence. They are sent away from the tree of life, which if they eat from it, it will allow them to live forever. But how can they live forever with a God whose words they've rejected and whose glory they've seized? And so God casts them out, away from life and away from himself. You see, at the heart of it all, sin separates us from God and it separates us from each other. Sin distorts, disorders and destroys God's good world. Where there is peace, it sows hostility. Where there is unity, it creates division. Where there is life, it breeds death. You know what? This this whole act of the fall can be summed up in just two tragic questions. Did God really say? And where are you? The first question, it tells us the cause of sin, doesn't it? We doubt distort and deny God's good words. We ask, did God really say? And the second question tells us the great cost of sin. Separation from the God of life. Where are you? Act 1. God created a good world for his people to rule and enjoy. Act 2. God's people reject his word and seize his glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, we repent of our sin against you, of rejecting your words and seizing your glory. Open our eyes to see the depths of our sin and the heights of your mercy. Humble us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.